0: I'm turning now to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2 and verse 1. Uh, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, and verse 2, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience and our subject is becoming spiritually alive, and this passage is concerned with that very issue. And you, hath he quickened? This first verse of chapter 2 has the words hath he quickened in italic print, indicating that these words are not to be found in the Greek original, but they are very necessary. They appear, in effect, down in verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And to make sense of a very long sentence in the original, the translators have brought that uh, phrase forward into verse 1 so that we get the subject clearly in our English language manner at the very beginning. And you hath he quickened or brought to life who were dead in trespasses and sins. It's about the inert, lifeless soul or the walking dead, you may say. That's how... The preachers of years ago used to describe all of us before conversion, walking dead. Now the phrase has been taken over to entitle various uh, fictional things, but uh, it actually comes from the world of preachers, the walking dead. And you hath he brought to life who were dead in trespasses and sins. A deliberate contradiction. And you, well, you always were alive. And yet we view you, says the apostle, as being dead. Because while physically alive, without Christ, without having ever come to him, and trusted in him, and depended upon him, and found him in a personal way. Without that, while we are physically alive, we are spiritually dead. Of course, the soul is never entirely dead, but it may be dormant, not functioning, inert, as good as dead in practice, and so it's fair to describe it as dead. And you, says the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians, the Ephesian church, and you have been brought to life who were dead. In what way dead? Well, spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. The word translated trespasses has to do with swerving aside. You, who were dead, having swerved aside, it's a way of describing the status of a rebel. You were in rebellion against God. You swerved or turned aside from him. You wanted nothing to do with him. You did not want, Paul says, at one time, to be under his rule. or or under his standards, under his commandments. You did not want that. You turned aside so as to have nothing to do with him and to rebel against him. So the word trespasses actually conveys to our mind a state of rebellion. And the word sins has to do with missing the mark. Missing the standard, the actual offences committed against God, which we have committed. So it's a twofold thing. We are spiritually dead because of our rebellion against God and because of our thoughts, words, and deeds that are contrary to His holy standards and His commandments. So, in that general twofold way, we're under his condemnation, we are alienated from him, and we may be described as dead. And the way the apostle uses these terms in this passage, it's fair to say he describes the spiritually dead or the walking dead as if it's an ethnic group. He seems to use the term in that way. And you see it more and more as you go through these passages and these sentences that uh, we are those who belong to this world. And the end of verse 3, we are by nature, by constitution, the children of wrath, or we were, even as others. He seems to regard us, if we're spiritually dead, almost like an ethnic group. And that's right. And then he describes exactly what we do. So this is the subject which is before us. If we've never been converted, spiritually speaking, we're corpses. I hope it isn't offensive or distasteful to you to describe the unconverted condition in this way, but we are. You may be fit, and strong you may have unusual athletic ability you may be very flexible and fluent in your movements and quick in your reactions maybe everything can be said for you in your favor physically but viewed as God views you spiritually you're a corpse there's no action no reaction concerning you at all the dead, dear friends. I'm sure many, many of you have seen somebody who has died. and I don't want to trample on uh, any uh, s- special or sensitive memories. But you know what characterizes someone who's departed when there's just a still body left. The dead are silent. There's absolutely no prospect of that dead person addressing you. That's finished. That's all over. The dead are silent. What a description of us spiritually. You're silent spiritually. Nothing passes from you. Knows as though no word can pass your lips completely silent, you never pray. You never speak about the soul or spiritual things. Why you can't, you've nothing to say. You don't understand about these things. You don't have any experience of them. But you can't speak to anybody else. If somebody's died, maybe you think that person might have wanted to warn a child or an offspring, about the importance of walking with God and being prepared for eternity. But it's too late. You can't speak now. And if we've never been converted, we do not address God. We do not want to address God. We don't know how to address God. We don't address God. Oh, maybe superstitiously sometimes. You may be very afraid of something and have a very great need and you may just blurt out a prayer to God, help me to have this or to do that, but it's more a superstitious kind of thing. You don't know him. You've never proved him. You don't relate to him. You don't know how to ask him. have no assurance that he's there and that he hears and that he's even interested in you. Your spiritual corpse. That's the reality, without conversion. And then naturally, the dead cannot hear. The dead person is unhearing. You cannot say, oh, I never had time or opportunity to tell you this, but I always wanted you to be wasting your breath to address somebody who died. They can't hear. They've gone completely deaf. And that describes you and I, if we're unconverted. We're deaf to all the calls of God. When Christ says, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All the invitations of Christ The calls to our soul, we haven't heard any of them because we're like a corpse. We can't hear. We can't hear. We can't understand anything. Our minds are closed. Somebody there is talking about forgiveness and how through Christ we can know forgiveness, a new life and a new beginning. And we can have union with God. And we can be set on the heavenly road. We're not hearing it. It's just talk. It doesn't sink in. We don't understand it. We're spiritual corpses. We don't hear anything. That's the state and condition we're in spiritually if we're not converted. There was a time when I was a youngster and I thought that this question of faith and conversion and Christianity was all nonsense and absurd and imagined and so on. It didn't mean anything to me. Just nonsense. I couldn't hear. It didn't register. It wasn't important to me. I was deaf and yet I thought I was the liberated one. I was the one in charge of my own life, my own destiny. I knew what I was doing. Those Christians that I knew, relying on a God, that's pathetic. They want to get out of that and get a life and live it. I didn't realize I was the one who was half alive because spiritually I was a corpse and I couldn't hear anything from God, is that our state and condition? We don't realize how much we've lost, how much we miss, how much we lack by not being a child of God and knowing Him and walking with Him. And then it's obvious to say it, friends, but the dead have no desire. That person is dead. It's a lifeless body. He, she, cannot any longer in the body desire anything. Cannot feel any aspiration, any longing, look forward to anything in the body. Not possible. The body's dead. And that's like us if we're unconverted. Someone talks of heaven? What's that? That's a myth. I'm not capable of looking forward to heaven. I can't feel like that. I can't look into eternity and into the future. I can't look into my future life and say, Christ is my saviour and my guide. And he will lead me, and he will help me, and he will prepare me and strengthen me, and hear my prayers, and he will grant me a privilege of being used by him, and of some purpose and value to him. I can't look ahead, desire anything. I'm dead, spiritually. That's our state and condition, unconverted, no desire. The dead cannot enjoy companionship. There's no touch. You can hold the hand, be a strange thing to do. There's no feeling. You can't interact with any emotional, sentimental connection. The dead body is completely insensitive and has absolutely No pleasure, no feeling, no anything. And if I'm unconverted, that's me. I take no pleasure in the living God, in his work, in his plans. If somebody says, come to a Bible study, learn the deep things of God, learn about the ways of God and the ways of Christ, I've no interest in that. I'm spiritually dead. I'm not capable of any pleasure or any joy or any deep happiness. I depend on things in the world. My happiness comes from things I possess, things I can have, things I can revel in, experiences and sensations I can have. I can't enjoy any of the highest things of life. I have no communion with God and no knowledge of him and his plans. I'm in every sense a corpse and, of course, I have no future. Is that our condition? Dead? And you hath he brought to life who were dead because of rebellion and offences against God, no life in the soul, under the condemnation of God. And of course, and this is a terrible thought, the corpse cannot change its mind. The corpse cannot decide, I'm getting up today. I'm going to reassociate with my family and friends. I'm going to my house. I miss it. All my place of business and all my work colleagues and my friends and the sights that I love and the things that I see. I'm changing my mind about this business of death. He can't. He's dead. He can't change his mind. And we are dead spiritually. We cannot change our state and condition. Or put it a better way, we will not change our state and condition. We are rebels against God. We've offended against him. We're against him. We resist him. And somebody says, Oh, if you would trust your life to Christ and come and repent of your sin and believe what he did on Calvary's cross to take away the punishment on your behalf in bearing all the pain and the guilt for those who repent, why well, it would make such a difference? He'd come into your life, he'd do this, he'd. I cannot choose to do that. I'm fixed in my death. I'm a corpse. And then the Apostle Paul writes, as he comes through this passage, verse 4, we're dead, yes, we were dead. Everything was hopeless. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, the mercy of God, For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath brought us to life together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. It is an amazing thing when God begins to work in a soul. But God, in his love, is determined to save from death, spiritual death, millions and millions of people and to work in these seemingly dead hearts that will not have him. And there's a stir and a dawning of light and suddenly a shaft of light comes through right into your mind and your understanding. But God is there. An almighty God is true, and I am a created being, made by Him. And I am a lost sinner, yet He is a God of love, and I need Him. And I begin to hear more and more that God Himself, in Christ, remember God is three persons, one Godhead, and one glorious member of the Godhead. Christ, the Savior, came down from heaven into this world to be a representative for sinners, to live a perfect life under great opposition and hostility, to do wonderful works of compassion and healing miracles, to demonstrate his divinity and his love and his kindness and then he died on Calvary I've mentioned it already to take the punishment of sin for all who would repent and you begin to understand it and you begin to marvel at it he would do that for a rebel creature like me a proud, uninterested slandering enemy of God like me He would come, Almighty God would come Himself and assume a human body and die for a creature like me. There is no condescension and kindness and mercy in this world to be compared with this, the coming down, down, down of Christ into this sinful world for us. And it begins to register. And it stops us in our tracks. And then, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we feel so deeply our wretchedness and our sinfulness and our need. And we cry to him for forgiveness. And we can see in our mind's eye all the kind of people we are and all we've done and all our deceit and all our selfishness and all our sin of every kind. Lord, forgive me, cleanse me, we say. And we trust in Christ and hand over our lives to him. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, brought us to life with Christ, and verse 6, hath raised us up together, not not talking yet about the resurrection, but our being raised up, just as he was raised up from the dead, raised up from our old lives, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does that language mean? When I come to Christ, I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm on the way home. I'm under the leading and the guidance of Christ, and I have my place, my mansion on high, and I'm made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then verse 8, because I must begin, draw to conclusion, for by grace are ye saved. That grace means undeserved mercy and kindness of God. By grace are ye saved. Through faith. Faith means you reach out to God as the result of his working in your heart and you repent and you trust in him. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Oh, if only there were friends here tonight and that dawning light comes and that stirring in the heart and the Holy Spirit is at work, and you feel your need so that you come to him and ask him for life and yield yourself to him. We are his workmanship, says the Apostle Paul. I read verse 13. But now, he says to the Ephesians, now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh, By the blood of Christ, he suffered and died in our place. If we believe in him, he took away our sin. And this brings us near to God to find union with him, for he is our peace. Oh, friends, the unbelief in the human heart. It's a strange, strange thing, this, that God has put an instinct into every one of us whereby we know in our innermost hearts that we are created by God and that he is there. And we know it. We have an instinct for God. And we have an instinct for eternity. The Bible says so. And we know there's another life. And after death, we go before God and after death what does the future hold banishment from God or being with him in his glorious presence everlastingly. these are basic instincts and yet for so many of us what we do is try our utmost to suppress them and drive them away and oppose them and reason against them and convince ourselves there is no God. Everything is a gigantic accident. All the wonder that we see around us and the complexity. Ourselves, human beings and our very existence and emotions and thoughts and powers, nothing is designed even though it looks as if it's designed. Nothing has been created in an orderly manner, even though it all looks like that. We convince ourselves it's a gigantic accident, a series of events that can be explained entirely in rationalistic terms. And we push God away, all our lies. What a contradiction we are. That's the result of rebellion and sin, and the state it's brought us to as a as a race, the human race, and as individuals. I don't want to try your patience and prolong matters unnecessarily this evening, but over this Christmas period, I see that, and I've heard from several people, that there's been a kind of a resurrection of the... Uh, uh, Protests against the Bible and the Christian faith, particularly aimed at the virgin birth of Christ. And uh, one very popular video by the late uh, Christopher Hitchens has been doing the rounds and attention has been drawn to it all over again, where in his uh, inimitable fast-talking because uh, he was a brilliant man in many ways in, the, in this fast talking manner he trenchantly uh, gets rid of the virgin birth of Christ and opposes it Well, I remember reading him on this years ago when I read several of his works and I've seen uh, quite a lot of those videos I just wanted to say one or two things in particular this is Symptomatic and typical of our opposition to God. Christopher Hitchens died about 11, 12 years ago at 62 years of age. Uh, he was uh, mostly uh, a left wing political commentator, journalist, but he spent a great deal of time opposing the Christian faith and became perhaps the leading writer of the century against the faith. But I have exhaustively read him, but for all that I have read, several things strike one's attention. Acknowledging he was an outstandingly clever man with an astonishing memory and so on, and rate of word delivery. Uh, Nevertheless, he is in this always, it seems to me, entirely unoriginal. I haven't actually myself seen anything from the late Christopher Hitchens that was original. These are objections to the Christian faith and to the Bible, criticisms, attacks, which have been going for centuries. You can trace the history of them. They're old hats and they're brought round again and again and again. But even more significant For years and years and years, they have all been totally and completely torpedoed and answered. Because most of them are mistaken and deeply mistaken. For instance, very often, uh, Christopher Hitchens will comment on the meaning of Hebrew words and he gets them wrong. His arguments are always defective and have always been answered. And you think to yourself, how did you manage to read all these objections to the faith and never read or take in the responses which demolished them and answered them off? But somehow, so great is our prejudice, I wouldn't accuse him of rank dishonesty, so great are our prejudices that we can do that. We can read the protest, make it our own, read the response, filter that out, and dismiss it. And this was so with the virgin birth of Christ. He has four lines of argument. Two, he thinks, demolish the virgin birth of Christ. And to say, Isaiah never predicted a virgin birth. Every one of his lines of argument are easily responded to and countered. They are defective. They are totally mistaken. Once again, he says, Isaiah used a Hebrew word when he, in the prophecy of a, a virgin shall conceive, which doesn't mean virgin. Well, in Five out of six of its uses in the Old Testament, it does mean virgin. He's actually quite wrong. He says Isaiah should have used another word which means virgin. That never means virgin. He's wrong. And other arguments. He says the context is not a context of prophecy. Well, he doesn't understand the Bible. Because the way Isaiah sets up his statement, oh house of Israel, then he makes his great prophecy, it's absolutely classic Isaiah prophecy. The whole context demands the, the virgin birth. Then he attacks uh, the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke's got all its dates wrong. Cyrenius to use the Greek version of the name, was never governor of Syria at the time that he would have to have been if the record of Luke was correct. But the according to secular history, what's the secular history? Josephus of all people, who in that period of history is astonishingly inaccurate and muddled and mixed up. And that is promoted above the authority of the Gospel of Luke, it's nonsense. But when it's spoken from a platform, his technique, Christopher Hitchens, he speaks like a machine gun. you probably heard him. He's very fast. He's, a, as I said, highly intelligent man. And it sounds so authoritative. And as you listen to it, you haven't got time to think. This was the, this was the uh, technique of uh, the famous trade union leaders of the 50s and the 60s. Speak fast! And they cultivated it. They went like machine guns, as they argued from the stump and on the uh, soapboxes and platforms. And he does that sort of thing, but with a much more refined accent than they had. And uh, people don't have time to reflect and to think and to analyse but it's mistaken deeply. Now, I only mention all this because classic and typical of uh, the uh, prejudice against God which develops in the human heart. Beware, dear friends, of these things. And I come back to the point of this passage. Without conversion, we're in every sense like corpses, and you, hath he brought to life, may you find life in Christ, so that by his power, he changes you. You think differently, you feel differently, you have a love for him, you understand the things of God, you know you're his, you relate to him. He actually changes you too in your within, your power over sin. He makes you a different person, a better person. Or that you find him and get that great river of evidence flowing through your own life, so that you can say, he has changed me, he has touched my life, he has made me his own. That's the message of Ephesians 2. And you, hath he quickened? Brought to life. Pray to him. May God move in your heart. Pray to him for life. That you'll be not just physically alive for the time being, but spiritually alive and moving toward heaven. Let's pray together. O God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us and bless us all this night. Teach us the barrenness of life without thee. Teach us afresh the danger of going into eternity without thee. Speak to our hearts, O Lord, that the corpse may live, that we may feel and hear and understand and speak and address thee, O Lord, stir us, we ask, and bring life and love for thyself, that we may be thine and walk with thee, we ask it, in the name of our Saviour, for his sake. Amen. Amen.